it is a joy to be able to worship our King together. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, where we're going to be today as we continue our, our series in Hebrews. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, and we'd love for you to be able to have that if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that there are so many resources that are available to you as we go through this study of Hebrews. You can find those online or on the app. One of the specific ones is the Bible reading plan. Uh, And so I'm just curious for those in the room, how many of you are in the Bible reading plan with us right now? You're not ashamed of it. Awesome. That's, That's so cool to see. How many, so next generation, kids, teenagers, how many of you guys are using the reading plan as well? All right, some hands, that's good. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whether you're already kind of going through it or you haven't jumped in yet, we we take a book every week or every two weeks. And so we've been in the book of Genesis. We just wrapped that up and we're starting the book of Exodus this week. And so if you've already kind of gotten behind, like those New Year's resolutions might be falling off on some of the Bible reading, that's okay. This is a great time to jump back in with us. And one of the reasons why we are reading through the Old Testament together while going through a New Testament book is because to really be able to understand and treasure the truths that we see about Jesus in the book of Hebrews, we have to have a knowledge of the Old Testament. Because so much of what we see in Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience who has that background. And we're going to see that this morning as we walk through Hebrews 1 and begin into Hebrews chapter 2. So we've taken the first three weeks of this series to look at three verses. And today uh, we're going to go all the way through chapter 1 into chapter 2. So we're going to start picking up some ground together. Uh, And so without any further ado, let's jump right into the Word. Just invite you to read along with me. Uh, And I'm going to start in verse 1. It'll pick up on the screens on verse 4, okay? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the the theme of Hebrews 1 and into Hebrews 2 is that God has spoken long ago. Now God has spoken to us, God's people, through the son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, we just sang about that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And I'll just pause there for a second. If you circle, underline that word excellent there, in some translations it's going to be better. Like the, the series titled Jesus is Better comes from this. Throughout the book of Hebrews, and this is the first time the author of Hebrews is going to say Jesus is better than the angels. He is the better covenant. He is the better rest. He is the better high priest. There's all these comparisons that we're going to see that holds Jesus up as superior and excellent. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and now as we go through the rest of this chapter, he's going to quote at least eight times from the Old Testament. Many of these out of the Psalms, but through other books of the Bible. He's defending, proving the superior word of Jesus. From Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, from 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father 
to him, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quoting Psalm 97, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, quoting from Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, and he quotes from Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, and he quotes from Psalm 102, we read it earlier. Pastor Michael led us in a prayer through this. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed or transformed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, and he quotes from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus quotes this same psalm in Matthew 22, speaking about himself. So we see this comparison, Jesus and the angels. Verse 14, the author makes this assessment. Are they not all ministering spirits, talking about the angels, sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore. This is the hinge passage. All that's in chapter 1 and chapter 2 kind of folds around this section. This is our first warning that is given to us as the people of God, as the church. In light of this revelation, in light of this Jesus who has spoken to us, in light of the Son who is superior to the angels, pay close attention to this, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For th since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, then he quotes from Psalm chapter 8. What is a man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, talking about this present world we live in. Verse 9, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and in case you were unsure of who we're talking about, he says it here, namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Such a beautiful passage of scripture that we get to look at this morning and dive into. And you might be saying, man, there's so much here. And yes, there is. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, there's, there's no way I could go through and unpack all these different Psalms and from 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy and all these different quotes that are here. But I encourage you, just part of your own abiding pursuit of the Lord, to come back to this passage, to 
go back and look at some of these sections, even like Pastor Mike walked us through, to pray through some of these scriptures, to meditate on these truths that he's pulling from. But the one thing that I do want us to see this morning, and we're going to take some time to consider, is the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making between the Son of God, Jesus, and the angels. And we get comparison. We, we live in a culture full of comparison all the time. We, we see things online, we get on social media, and we see comparison, we compare ourselves to other people. And so comparison is normal for us. Let me just give you a few comparisons that I've heard people talk about, I've seen in media, it's out there. Uh, there's comparisons within sports. Who's better, LeBron or Michael Jordan? Comparisons, they're there. I already hear some people, you've, you've got some thoughts on this. You know, sometimes there's comparisons around food, like what's better, Coke or Pepsi? What's better, pancakes or waffles? Waffles are the correct answer, of course, you know, they're there. Yeah, which type of vacation is better, going to the mountains or going to the beach? Or maybe for some of you who are animal lovers, what kind of pet is better, a cat or a dog? We know Mike's answer to that question right there. He probably is offended that cats are even in the category of pets. But we get comparisons, right? We understand what it's like to look at one thing and compare it to something else. But here's what I want you to see. In all the comparisons that I just gave you, they are comparisons of similar things. They're similar. There, there are attributes that are similar to one another. There's pros, there's cons, there's strengths, there's weaknesses. This is so important as we read this passage this morning. That's not the kind of comparison the author of Hebrews is making. He is bringing a comparison to, between Jesus and the angels to show that there is no comparison. He's not comparing Michael Jordan to LeBron. He's comparing Pastor Paul's basketball ability to LeBron James. There's no comparison. I'm struggling to get to six foot. LeBron is six seven. And we can just go through all the things. There's no comparison between me and him. And the point of this passage is to say, even though the angels are mighty and they have brought the revelation of God to his people and they work wonders and they're powerful beings and they're supernatural, they hold no comparison to Jesus. The church family this morning, the author of Hebrews, is pointing our hearts and our eyes to see that Jesus is incomparably glorious. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our affection. We are to fix our eyes and our hearts onto him, which leads to our big truth this morning. Jesus is superior to the angels. Not just a little bit, not just in some ways, in every way. It's not even close. And the point the author of Hebrews is making that he wants you and I and his audience to grab a hold of is this. If Jesus is far superior to the angels, he is worthy of your affection, my affection, your attention, my attention, and our devotion above all things. He is worthy. Look at verse we see this truth plainly here having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs the author of Hebrews has 
kind of three main aims that we're going to unpack in our time together as we walk through this text. The first one is to demonstrate clearly and indisputably that Jesus is incomparably glorious. He is supreme, he is superior, he is so much better and he's going to do that through looking at Old Testament texts. Again, that's why we want to be a people who read the whole Bible, who understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament points to Jesus and pushes to Jesus. It, it helps us understand who God is. But the second thing he's going to do in this passage is he's going to show us that Jesus is worthy of our greatest attention. That we don't need to compare Jesus to other things. And here's the reality. I think for most of us in this room, we would be quick to say that Jesus is without comparison. But here's the question. I want you to listen to me for a second this morning. Lean in on this. Do you live like there is no comparison to Jesus? Does the way you spend your time, your money, your attention, your marriage, your parenting, your education, does it reflect the reality that Jesus is beyond comparison? Because the tendency and proclivity of my heart is to look to other things instead of look to Jesus for my hope. And what the author's wanting us to do is to stop looking at all the other things and start looking at him. I love this example I've used before. Two people never stand in front of Mount Everest and argue about who's taller. They just look up and wonder. And my prayer this morning is as we walk through this passage, you and I, we would look up and wonder at our God who is all these things that we're going to see, but he's not just superior and he's not just all these things. He has made himself known to you and to me. What a savior. The third thing that the author of Hebrews does in this passage is he exposes and warns us of our tendency to not treasure him as superior. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk back through this text, give you some big ideas to think about. And there's really three questions that I think that are important to try to answer as we walk this passage. One is, why angels? Why is he even making comparison? What's the big deal about the angels? Why is he talking about this? Because that's, that's different for us. We don't think a whole lot about angels in our culture. So wh why angels? Second, how is Jesus superior? How is he better than the angels? Why should we see him as incomparably glorious? And then third, if Jesus is superior... How should we respond? What should be our response in this moment, this morning? So first question, why angels? And that leads us to our first big idea. Angels are mighty servants of God. Angels are mighty servants of God. We live in a world, and this is hard for us, and in Bible times they were much more aware of the supernatural world and they were much more aware of the purpose of angels and believed in the supernatural and understood that there are angels and there are demons. And friends, this is a true reality, not just of them, this is a true reality of us today. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church, reminds us of this reality. In Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Angels and demons are real. There's present, the supernatural world is happening all around us. That's not just make-believe. Scripture speaks to this. 
And in that supernatural realm, angels were seen by the Jews and by God's peoples having authority and power. They were people or beings who would do the will of God and minister on God's behalf. And so they were revered. And that's why in verse 4 he brings up that, they have been much, that he is much more superior to the angels. The audience here would have held angels in high regard. And so in this passage he gives us at least three things that are true about the angels. Just highlight these for you. These are in the notes online if you want to go grab them later. Three things he says about angels. One, angels are powerful beings who carry out the will of God in creation. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. So he's making a comparison and talking about the power of angels, but he's also talking about the angels' work among the created order. That part of the way that God makes the world work the way he does is through his angels. These are beings are at work in creation all around us. Second, he says, angels are ministering spirits. Spirits sent to serve God's people. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve God's people. Look at verse 14. This is incredible. Talking about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What is he saying? Angels, even now and today, serve God's people. We may not see them. We may not know that they're there. But they are at work around and among us to help us. That's good news, brothers and sisters. And that's not just like an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about beings sent by God to help God's people. But then the third thing that is true about angels, and this is really why he's making this comparison between angels and Jesus, is this, angels are God's messengers delivering his law and promises to the people under the old covenant look at verse 2 of chapter 2 for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution what's he saying he's saying that the angels helped bring God's revelation God's law the Torah to God's people the reason why the the Jewish people held angels in such high regard is because it was through angels that God would bring some of his revelation, his word to his people. And so the way that God's people would see and know him oftentimes was through a physical author, but it was also through the angels coming to those physical authors, bringing God's word that we now have in the Bible. This point is central to what's happening in this text and the author's argument. And we see this in other passages of Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 33.2 says this. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came out from the tens and thousands of holy ones, angels, with flaming fire at his right hand. God appeared to Moses on the mountain to give him the law, the Ten Commandments, and all those other laws we get in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers. And that as God was speaking to Moses, there were angels present in that moment. Psalm 68, 17 confirms and kind of helps us here. But we also see this in the New Testament. Acts 7, Stephen speaking. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Listen to this. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So even in the early church, they saw the law of God coming through the intermediary of angels bringing that law to God's people. Or in Galatians 3.19, the Apostle Paul says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You might be saying, okay, Paul, this is fascinating. Why are we talking about all of this? Here's the point. Angels were powerful and trustworthy servants, messengers of God, who the people of God revered because they brought God's law to God's people. However, these beings, as trustworthy as they are, as mighty as they are, as reliable as they are, they are incomparable to the Son. They don't stand anywhere close to Jesus. That if, and this is the important part, and we'll come back to it in a minute, if the message of angels was reliable, here's the point, how much more trustworthy is the message of the Son? If we can trust what they brought us, how much more superior, how much more trustworthy is the message of Jesus the Son? And so we see that first big idea, angels are mighty servants of God, but this leads to our second big idea, Jesus is superior in every way. There is no comparison. He is above all and greater than all. Look at verse 4 again. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews making a definitive statement about Jesus. He is much superior if you circle or highlight in your Bible. Another thing that he says is that the superiority that is being highlighted, this is important and this is something that's kind of been bending my mind just in my own personal abiding this week and studying, is that it's not just because Jesus is divine and God. Like we've spent the last two weeks talking about Jesus' divinity and his humanity. He's fully God, he's fully man. But it's important to note that the author's not saying Jesus is superior because he's divine. That would be true. But he's saying something else. He's saying Jesus is superior because of his name. He has a name that is a better name. It's a name he has inherited, a name that he has won by an act that he has done. What is that name? The name is Son. Now, I don't know how many of you have children, but probably none of you named your son Son, right? Like, we, we have all kinds of names. So that's probably not the one we use. We use that to refer to our children, but this name, Son, while it may not give a lot of weight or significance to us, was massive to them. Why? Because all throughout the Old Testament, there was the promise of a coming Son. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve sin against God. Sin enters in the world. God makes his promise. There's going to be a son who's going to be born of a woman. The serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. 
Abraham, I'm going to give you a family, son. And through that family, through that son, all the nations will be blessed. David, you are going to have a son who's going to reign on an everlasting throne. And his kingdom will have no end. Daniel, the Ancient of Days, there was one like the Son of Man. And he was given all dominion and all authority. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. A son is coming, a son is coming, a son is coming, a son is coming. And now the authors of Hebrews says, there's one who has come and his name is the Son. He is superior in every way because he is the Son, not only the Son of God, but the Son of God who laid down his life, who died for sinful man and who rose again and he is now highly exalted above everyone and everything. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through this text very quickly, and there's so many of these, but I want to highlight eight ways that Jesus is superior. Okay, and again, these are in the notes. You can go grab these later if you want, but I just want you to listen to these things. And he's just making this argument again and again and again that Jesus is superior. Eight ways that Jesus is superior to the angels that should draw our hearts into worship, draw our hearts into awe. The first is this, Jesus is the promised Son. See this in verses 4 through 6. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him, he shall be my son. Angels are servants of God, but Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of promise, the one who would come and take away sin. But not only is Jesus the promised son, secondly, Jesus is God. Look at verse 8. God himself says of the son... But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The God of the universe looks at the Son and says, you are God. When God says to someone else, you are God, we should take notice. God saying to God, you are God. Jesus is not lesser than God. He is not created by God. He is not a subsidiary of God. Jesus is fully God. He is the one we worship. He is the one we adore. He is superior to the angels because the angels minister to God and worship God, but Jesus is God. All power and authority belong to him. But not only is Jesus God, third, we see that Jesus is the promised heir of David. Again in verse 8, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, this promise. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness and the scepter is your kingdom. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. Jesus fulfills the promise. He is the son of David who's come to take away the sin of the world. But not only is Jesus the promised heir of David. Fourth, Jesus is the righteous ruler. Look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Friends, this is good news. Jesus is not just the Son. He's not just righteous. He's not just a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the righteous ruler, meaning everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is right. In a world that's full of brokenness, where we long for justice and we see injustice all around us. He is the righteous ruler. And in Jesus, this is so important, friends, love and justice meet. You cannot have love and withhold justice. Justice and love must go together. 
I cannot love you if I choose to look past injustice done to you, right? If someone wrongs my child and I look past that wrong, I am not fully loving my child. And so Jesus is where love and justice come together because God so loved the world that he gave his son. And we live in a culture that tries to pit love against justice and mercy against wrath, but you can't have either unless you have both. And in Jesus, we have both. He is the righteous ruler, full of joy and gladness in his rule. Fifth, Jesus is the creator, verse 10. And you, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. Amen? Which leads to another truth about Jesus. Jesus is everlasting and unchanging. He is unfading. He we shift, we change all the time. We change our minds all the time. If you're married or have kids, like you get frustrated because people change their mind all the time. We can't decide where we're gonna go to dinner. Where do you wanna go? I don't know. Like we change all the time. We can't sit on anything. Jesus never changes, amen? He never fades. He stays the same. In a world that's constantly shifting, our hearts go this way and that way. He remains the same. He is an anchor to the soul. He sits outside of time. And he is over time. Not only is Jesus everlasting and unchanging, seventh, Jesus is the King. He is the King. Listen to these words in verse 8 and 13 in chapter 2, 7 through 8. Throne, scepter, kingdom, crown, subjection. He is the one true king. He rules and reigns over all things. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He is ruler over all. Angels are servants, but Jesus is the king. Jesus more than a good man or a prophet, a sage, a miracle worker. Jesus is the one true king. And eighth, lastly, Jesus is the suffering servant. Chapter 2, verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower, his humiliation than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We'll get more into this next week. But Isaiah 53 paints this picture of the coming suffering servant. The one who will humble himself and die on behalf of sinful people. Friends, Jesus is all these things. And it's for these reasons that the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is superior in every way. Jesus is better. Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul will say it this way, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Friends, Jesus is superior in every way not just to the angels but to all things so that leads to the last question this morning how should we respond what do we do with this and I have two big ideas to finish our time up if Jesus is incomparably glorious how should we respond third big idea 
Jesus is worthy of our greatest attention. Jesus is worthy of our greatest attention. Would you look at verse 1 of chapter 2? In light of all these things that the author of Hebrews has made clear about Jesus, pulling from the Old Testament and saying these things are true, this is his conclusion for you and for me this morning. Therefore, in light of all that has been said, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, meaning when the angel said this was law and people broke the law, they were punished for that. Everything the angel said was reliable. If the angels were reliable, how much more reliable is the message of the Son? It was declared at first by the Lord and attested to by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, by gifts the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, which all hinges back to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? Pay attention to the Son. That's the response. If Jesus is superior, if Jesus is better, if Jesus is greater, if he is the promised son, if all these things are true of him, we need to pay attention to the son. He is worthy of our greatest attention. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, in light of what has been said, we must, not a suggestion, not a recommendation. If you're Jesus far in this room, this is a charge. We must do this. What are we to do? Pay much closer attention. Examine closely. Look at our lives. Measure our lives. Here's the question. Does your life reflect a life that truly believes Jesus is superior? Does the way that you pursue an abiding relationship with Jesus, reading God's word, and prayer and worship, does it reflect a heart that believes Jesus is greater? The way that you bear witness and testimony of Jesus at school, at work, in your home, or lack thereof, does it show that Jesus is greater? Does your life demonstrate that Jesus is worthy of your greatest attention? Listen, we will give our attention to many different things. It's not wrong. We, our, our lives are busy. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's okay to think about our finances. It's okay to want to take care of our kids. It's All those things are good. But here's the question, church. Who gets your greatest attention? Who gets your greatest affection? Who gets your greatest devotion? And the warning is, beware lest we drift from what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So there's a warning here, and Pastor Daniel said this last week, there's five warning sections throughout Hebrew. This is the first one. And there's really two parts to this warning. Part one, here it is. You ready? Your propensity, my propensity, our propensity is to drift. It's to take our eyes off of the sun. There's two words here, the word attention and the word drift that are both nautical terms. The word attention in the Greek means to moor a ship, to tie a ship off, to fix it to something. 
He's saying, when he says pay attention, he's saying anchor yourself to Jesus. Tie yourself to him. Put your life in him. Set it on him. And beware lest you drift. Another nautical example of an anchor, a ship without an anchor that's just kind of drifting off from where it was meant to be. It's a warning to us. Tie yourself to Jesus or you will drift away. Jesus should always receive our greatest attention. The desire and compulsion of every true Jesus follower is to center their life on him, to bring their actions in alignment with God's word, to repent, to pursue him. This is the desire of genuine Jesus followers. And the ultimate form of drifting is apostasy. It's denial. It's walking away from the faith. And the author of Hebrews is warning the church, friends, beware lest you drift, lest you walk walk away, lest you move from Jesus. Let me say it a different way. You can't keep Jesus on the periphery of your life if you're a genuine Jesus follower. Jesus is your life or you do not belong to him. It's the warning of this passage that doesn't mean things don't compete for our affection. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't face temptation. But friend, a genuine Jesus follower is always going to desire and push forward back to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Which leads to a second part of the warning this morning in our last big idea, which is this. Rejection of Jesus results in God's judgment. Rejection of Jesus results in God's judgment. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Friends, if you reject the Son, if you do not center your life on the Son, if you do not give yourself to the Son, there is no hope for you. Hell is real. Eternal separation from God is real. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man comes to God the Father except through Jesus the Son. And if we turn from Jesus, there is no hope for us. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God has provided everything we need to confirm the existence and trustworthiness of Jesus through his word. To reject Jesus as Lord over every aspect of our life leads to being rejected by God. There is no escape for those who reject the Son. So friends, this morning, do you know the Son? Not do you go to church not do you read your Bible, not did you have experience, a spiritual experience when you were a child or were you baptized. Do you know the Son? Are you pursuing the Son? Are you bringing your life in submission to the Son? And my fear, friends, is that there are so many in our families, in our area, even in this room, who are just kind of living like coasting Christians. And we think that because we're around the things of God that we belong to God. We do not belong to God if we do not give our lives to the Son. 
MacArthur, John MacArthur, pastor, says it this way, most people do not go headlong and intentionally into hell. They drift into it. It's not the pursuit, it's not the aim, it is the way life moves. Friends, Jesus is superior in every way. He's incomparably glorious. He deserves your full attention. He deserves our devotion. He deserves our love and our affection. Do you love the Son? If you're here this morning, you're a Jesus follower. Is there any area of your life where you're beginning to drift from that devotion, from that affection? Your attention is being distracted by other things. This morning, if that's you, and I think for many of us, for most of us, this is me as a Christian. This is an opportunity to repent, to respond, to put those things before the Lord. God, forgive me. Help me. John Owen, a a pastor, said that these realities that we see in the Son should produce in us greater faith Love, obedience, and steadfastness, endurance. One of the main themes of Hebrews. It draws us in, it pushes us forward. So for some of us this morning, let's pray, Lord, would you help me grow in endurance? Do you help me grow in steadfastness? Would you help me to run the race well? Setting my greatest attention on you. But for others, friends, have you surrendered to the Son? Are you neglecting this great salvation? It's an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. I'm going to pray for us and then Pastor Mike's going to lead us in a time of response. This is your time to look at your height and your heart in regard to Jesus, our superior Savior. Father God, I just pray for my friends. We thank you for this passage It's convicting, it's challenging, it's heavy. But Lord, we pray that these truths would ring through, that you would help us to pay closer attention so that we wouldn't drift, that we would not neglect this great salvation. For anyone in this room who is neglecting that salvation, Holy Spirit, would you please open their eyes to see it and help them to see you as better. And for us as your people, as your church, would you create a deeper desire to give you our greatest attention and affection? Would you do that work in us by your grace and mercy? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.